can, can we just put a pause on this for a sec? Yes. Like the whole show. Okay. There's there's some like ghostly activity going <laughs> on outside your door, Robin. <laughs> systematically your okay we can be honest semi-weekly theology podcast sorry things have been a little slow uh summer schedules are weird but hey we're here and we're back at it i'm john heaps i'm speaking to you from my walk-in closet in austin texas i'm here with robin beret hey robin oh hey Uh, i'm here also with ryan hemmer hi ryan good morning everybody um we're glad to be talking to you again we have, if you're interested, I'll just do it real quick at the top of the show here. We have a uh, Patreon. If you want to check it out, patreon.com slash systematically. You can check that out. Um, if you want to annoy us on Twitter, uh, I've been a little remiss with the Twitter thing lately, but I will get back at it at systematic pod. Uh, and if you want to send us an email, we, uh, we actually got an email a little while ago. Um, we have a church old and new. We didn't talk about this before the show, but we should set aside a little time. I can read, uh, I read our Fred David's. Uh, treasures old and new at the end of the show if we set aside a little we still have time um so if you want to send us treasures old and new uh or anything or just questions or complaints or um i don't know uh tv show recommendations we're all ears that's systematically podcast at gmail.com um so yeah we're gonna jump right into it robin is just full of ideas this morning and so we're gonna i'm gonna just sort of hand it off to her and she is going to uh, she's going to lead us on a merry adventure. So, Robin, what's going on? Well, um, this morning we're going to get Trinitarian. Yeah, all up in this shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have very few ideas, but I have lots of questions, guys. So we're going to be talking about the Trinity. Um, and I know this is going to be crazy. We're not going to preface our discussion by saying. Well, whenever you talk about the Trinity, of course, it's always a little bit of heresy because, like, we don't understand. That doesn't have to be true. Because it doesn't have to be true because, like, there's, like, you can acknowledge an analogy between us and an imperfect knowledge without being like, we have descended into heresy. So, there we go. I'm staking (laughs) my claim in that. And you guys can all complain on Twitter that we didn't give the necessary uh, disclaimer before we started. Just say mystery every other sentence and you'll be just fine. Yeah. Um, don't just don't call attention to the fact that it's really just a flight from understanding, but no obscurantism, faith. Those are basically the same thing, right? (laughs) I've always thought so. It's worked for me. Um, (laughs) okay. But before we get started on my actual question, because, you know, we're thinking thinking about Trinitarian things. I wanted first to hear from everyone, like, what is your favorite three in one product or item? So like you can think about, you know, like there's. Dick Van Dyke's like, um, bit like uh, you know, like people play the one man band. It's like it's a drum kit, it's a harmonica, it's a banjo. Like it's three and it's one because yes. it's just like, just like the Trinity. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, actually any three membered band is kind of like that too. But I just want to <laughs> hear from you guys. What is your favorite like three just in like, one item? Just like Chevelle. <laughs> There's a timely reference. Yeah. Very. <laughs> I hope they're doing okay. Yeah, Chicago band. Um, so, uh, 
I, I enjoy. I was like all of a sudden 2002 in my head, and I just <laughs> can't, I, can't get back. Where am I? Give me where back. I am. <laughs> um, I, my my answer to this uh, harkens to the 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 all too common YouTube comment question, which is uh, when are you going to drop your skincare routine? Um, I, as I've said before, uh, have a delicate constitution. Had I been born in the 19th century, I'm sure I wouldn't have lived to adulthood. Um, and so I have a, uh, a, an, an uh, unguent or something that comes in a little bottle uh, that is both a facial moisturizer, both, it has to be free, I don't know, both, right. whatever. Uh, it's a facial moisturizer, it's a sunscreen, and it's also a rosacea treatment. And uh, this keeps me in my uh, healthy glow that I have. So that's that's the best I could come up with on short notice. Um, It's made by Cetaphil. We'll put it in the show notes. I'm not going to put a link to that in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) But if y'all have sensitive skin, Cetaphil. No, really, it's it's, by dermatologist. It is. It's a good. It's a good product. It's helped me out. So I, I, Robin said she was going to drop this question on us about five minutes ago. And um, not unlike John, I, I found that five minutes of creativity, um, you know, are insufficient. So the best <laughs> I can come up with, um, which I'm sure will invite all kinds of accusations of um, being a cultural Philistine, but, uh, you know, there's this product that they make that you can buy at the stores. It comes in a bottle, the contents of which can be used for three things that are related but distinct, really distinct. (laughs) You can use it to clean your hair. We call this shampoo. You can use it to condition your hair, appropriately called conditioner. And you can use it to wash your body. So three things, one bottle, one product. Yeah. What more could you want? Mm-hmm. And of particular importance for Ryan, you only have to pay for it the one time. That's true too. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of high-end three-in-one. Which is, you know, I, I understand from an aesthetic standpoint, but it really seems like a missed opportunity because, <laughs> you know, if, if you're getting three products for the price of one, you can pay a little more for the one. There you go. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they should just charge an extra dollar for the thing. <laughs> Although, I'm going to write a letter after we're done recording. Strongly here. worded. I mean, like the shampoo and body wash is a thing. It's like, I'm just thinking about like, you know, some of the men I know whose body is at least as hairy as their head. And it's like, Shit, is there really a, on this podcast? <laughs> so is there really dif- a difference between shampoo and body wash for you? Because like, what do you shampoo for? Well, your hair and the scalp that's underneath. So it's like, you've got skin and you've got hair. So if you're talking about like just a right hairy ass or like calves or like a really Let's hairy say- chest, Let's stay above the collar to, to, to speak personally. Just staying above the collar. My, the, the, Let's the say beard, your calves are like super. The beard, like you have to wear gold chains so you know where to beard, stop shaking. Yeah, it's true. It just marks it. Uh, no, the, the, the beard and the, the head hair even 
are distinct and the skin beneath uh, sort of differently, uh, differently constituted. Um, I think if I was, I think if I was using my, my shampoo on the beard, even when I had a big long beard, um, I would kind of use it on the ends, but if I was like really scrubbing it in there, I think I'd probably get like irritated facial skin or something. I'd have to have a, again, uh, I probably shouldn't have lived to adulthood, but, um, yeah, I think for me, I think I would, I would need a differentiated pH balance thing. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Well, guys, I'm not going to share any more than I already have about this. (laughs) Well, Robin. You asked this insane question. What's your answer? Oh, man. Well, first, I mean, I do have a confession. So I, I, I used to have really long hair, like, which is now hard to believe, but I did for most of my life. And one year I was tree planting and I'm like, and this is like, I took, I took like good care of me, like whatever. And I was going out tree planting. I was like, man, I'm living in the bush. There's like a shower trailer. I need like a quick, easy solution. So I did buy myself a three-in-one shampoo, conditioner, body wash that I used for an entire season. And in my, like, diluted memory, I have, like, great memories of that product, like, and and what it did for me and its accomplishment in cleaning all of the things it needed to do. But I'm sure now, like... When you're bathing outside, though, uh, your your expectations are... are Just, like, a little lower, Well, they're they're just adjusted to the situation. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I look back on that as like this. And I can't remember the brand. It was a teal bottle. And I look back on this it's like this amazing miracle product. But I'm sure if I used it now um, and I wasn't in the bush, uh, it would be exactly uh, the kind of reviled product that it deserves to be. <laughs> I'm reading uh, I'm reading this insanely long biography of Winston Churchill right now. Uh, nerd. Yeah, it's true. Huge nerd. And, uh, but, you know, later in life, he would talk about sort of, um, share the sort of shared cultural heritage of the American and English societies and the sort of uh, way in which the English language binds us together in our common fight against Nazis or whatever. Um, but <laughs> earlier on in his life, he, he had a kind of, uh, he, he had a kind of B-roll version of that line that was about. Uh, how English, the English and the Americans share a passion for bathing not shared by the rest of like the North Atlantic community. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and his line was something to the effect of like, um, two, like uh, two nations divided by a great, uh, like a, a great basin of soapy water or something like that. Uh, yeah, that Snappy. Was, yeah, that was his, that was his estimation of what really bound Americans and the English together our shared passion for, for bathing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, maybe if I'm Canadian, but like best like three in one product has got to be the snow brush scraper ice pick. Oh, that's pretty good. Like the, the stormy Cromer uh, for all my uh, upper peninsula listeners is a pretty good three in one product, right? Um, it's a baseball cap, but it's also made out of wool. But it also, if things get really hairy, has ear flaps. Ooh. Yeah. I was going to say a bottle opener. <laughs> that would be if the Stormy Cromer was invented in Wisconsin. <laughs> um. Um, yeah, anyways. But I think, like, just, like, it used to be that you had, like, a snow brush, and then you had a scraper, and then you just had, to, like, you were on your own for an ice pick. 
And then you start getting Snowbrush and Scraper together. But now. <laughs> oh, brave guys. new world. Oh, it's just like, it's like winter doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, well, let's maybe move on to what we actually are supposed to talk about today Sweet. for a little while. Yeah. So what I want to know today, and I'm full of questions because I assume that mostly Ryan and also John are full of answers. You know what they say about assumptions. Yeah. They're like handy and they almost always get you where you need to go. And every once in a while, you're a bit mistaken. Probably uh, uh, that's an idiom that needs to be workshopped a little, but we'll get it whittled down. <laughs> I need to find a way to use the letters of assume to make that point. <laughs> you might need assumption. You might need the extra letters. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll be an acronym. There you go. Um, anyways, so what I'm really interested today in is the question of the filioque. And I got thinking about it a couple weeks ago because when we say the Nicene Creed at our church, we say the and the son in Latin, of course, filioque. Um, the O being the the, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan hates me right now. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, and then I went to church somewhere else. I can't remember where. And of course, when we said the Nicene Creed, they just left out. So no, they left out the whole filioque. Um, and that's fairly common in the Anglican church because of kind of ecumenical relationships with the Eastern church. They then basically have like a lot of the churches have dropped the filioque from the, from the Nicene Creed specifically. And it kind of just got me thinking about the fact that I don't really know like what I think about the filioque or particularly how to think about it and so there's you can approach the question historically right like okay well who came up with it when did the west start introducing it what's his face put the silver plaque on the altar in like the eighth century that had like not the filioque in it because he was so worried about the filioque and then it came in blah blah, blah. anyways and then there's a the whole ecumenical question. And that's usually the discussion only ever ends up there. People either make a historical point or they make some sort of point about like relationships or like, I don't know, oppression or getting along or any of that sort of stuff. And I just don't care about that. That's not what I'm interested in. Like I said before the show, this podcast isn't called Historically. Yeah. And it's certainly cares? not called Let's All Get Alongly. Oh, um, boy, and how. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm really interested there's in more old, like there's an old Steve Martin joke for this, which is he says, uh, some people have a way with words and others oh not have way, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. But then there but then there's kind of the like the more dogmatic questions and the systematic questions. So what I'm really interested in is working through those. And what I want to know is like, hey. You've got the filioque, that's one option. You've also got the paraphilium, that's another option. Um, can you, uh, say what these are as we go through them? Can, can we just put a pause on this for a sec? Yes. Like the whole show? Okay. There's, there's some like ghostly activity going <laughs> on outside your door, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I think it is. Sorry, guys. I think it's the blender upstairs in the kitchen. <laughs> 
somebody's having their smoothie, their Saturday yeah. morning smoothie. <laughs> yeah, but no, actually, because the like the soundproofing between the kitchen and the office is so bad, and it's tile floors. I, I'm, I'm, I was I was hearing knocking, and then there was the the light sh- shifting underneath the bottom of the door. So, and then the the yeah, then then the sort of the whirl, the ghostly whirl. <laughs> okay, the knocking at the door is probably like Juliet wanting okay. in on whatever's going on, and the ghostly right. whirl was the blender. It seemed like a horror movie was about to be enacted uh, live on the show, so. Yeah, which, like, I mean, you have to say, a horror movie that could really pull off, like, that level of scary at 9.30 in the morning, I mean... That's true, that would be impressive. Yeah, I'd die for that. All right, John, you want to count us back in? Is it is it done, you think, Robin? It should be, yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I, I'm, we're leaving that in. That's cold. <laughs> I'm not... What are they, you think I'm going to splice this together? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I do. <laughs> listeners, I love you and I appreciate you, and we're so glad you're listening. But I have two toddlers uh, and a lot of laundry to do, so I'm not doing that. We're just going to jump back in. So I'm sorry. We were enumerating the options, uh, right. Robin. So it's filial quay, like with the and you know the the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Mm-hmm. You have the paraphilium, which, as far as I understand, is the spirit proceeds from the father through the son. And then I'm trying to think of other options. I guess you could say that the son has nothing to do with it, and the spirit proceeds from the father and that's and him and the son like both the son and the spirit proceed from the father but in no way are they kind of related to each other through any sort of procession um yeah anyways those are the options i thought of i guess oh and then i guess there's the fourth option which is like there is no holy spirit and or it's not god but i was gonna table that one under the banner of heresy so um yeah anyways so those are my questions, basically, like, what's the difference between them? What are our options? And then kind of systematically, how do we think through, what's, what's, what do we get from the filioque way we don't get from the paraphilium or vice versa? And like, kind of what does it mean for the persons, kind of how they're related in these ways? So like, like you enumerated, Robin, I mean, there's, there's really three versions of this question. Um, there's a historical question about development uh, or decline, depending on your uh, affiliation. Um, there's, a, there's a doctrinal or dogmatic question, which is really about what is true. And in this case, the question is, is it true or not that the spirit in some respect, depends upon the sun. And if that's not true, um, then none of the formulas really have any purchase whatsoever. None of them can be the case. If it is true, um, then there's a third question, which is a systematic question, which is how ought we to understand the nature and character and modality of that dependence or that relation? Um, I mean, I have at best an amateurish, uh, sort of understanding of the historical development question. Um, you know, these, these things tend to be largely, um, 
kind of ex post factum arguments in ecumenical or non-ecumenical circles about who who's always been right and for how long. Uh, I have this this uh, friend that John and I went to to school with, who's Orthodox, who who used to say uh, to be provocative, but also I think because he thought it was true that the one thing he did not find objectionable about the filioque way was its theology. <laughs> you know, it's everything else about it that makes it a problem, right? It's it's um, the the respect in which it depends on um, not just like the primacy of the bishop of, of Rome, but like you know the Holy Roman Empire and the Carolingian Renaissance and like all you know all of these these largely Western military and political and ecclesial powers that are sort of asserting their will. And so it's really a question about a power, about authority and about their exercise. Um, and that's what people really want to fight about when you kind of strip away the uh, ornamentation of, of the theology. At least this is, this is my somewhat anecdotal experiences. Um, and, and Easterners... That- and we might add that, like, as as pertains to dogma, that's not it's not like entirely inappropriate. Um, be, insofar as 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 our friend Jacob Brinder connects would remind us, right? When you're when you're talking about, um, well, look, insofar as bishops have the authority to teach, right? A question of authority is going to be a big a big part of it, and the and the sort of, at least theologically speaking, the the where the sort of nature and shape of that that authority is hashed out is in ecclesiology and as jacob would remind us right like ecclesiology yes is theological but it's also like always going to be historical and political and that's true i mean the 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 issue in this case is that the the sort of um flow of the development really isn't coming from bishops primarily it's it's coming from theologians and from politicians well Uh, Right, but you're also dealing with like at least early on a stretch of history where, like, the, those Venn diagrams overlap. No, no, quite right. But I mean, Rob, Robin's example, right, of the the silver plates that have the nice oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. written in Latin without the filioque, uh, and I think it was Leo the Second who's the Pope at the time. Uh, you know, a very strong resistance to this kind of um, these Carolingian. Uh, basically like uh, musical renderings, right? They're choral uh, arrangements of the creed that include the filioque and beca- had become common in all of the, in all of the churches in the, in the Holy Roman Empire. And so the, if, if anything, you have a kind of Roman resistance to the filioque uh, for many, many centuries. I mean, you really don't get a full dogmatic statement about it until Florence uh, and what, like the, 15th century or well, something I'm, like that. I'm just making a, I'm making a much more like what background point, which is just that like, um, uh, bit like, so, so all the things I said about sort of bishops and ecclesiology, like none of that, uh, all that stuff, I, I'm just sort of, I'm trying to ventriloquize Jacob a little bit to say, and, like, and, and all of that stuff happens in history and history has like politicians and weird, weird quirks and eddies of power and authority and the distribution of military might. and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that's all true. It also has nothing to do with what's true or not about God. No, no, I mean, yeah. quite so. I'm just saying, like, in terms of if if you if what you wanted to talk about was 
what you what you delineated, right? The the dogmatic and also the historical questions. Like in our offices at universities, we might like to be able to separate those things out. Um, but we don't like in we don't we don't in practice get to actually um sep like we don't get to separate those processes out. But well, but I mean you... may, maybe not uh like metaphysically, but methodically we certainly can ah yes let's questions we want to ask and which ones we don't very good and and, and i think like and you can and you can make these distinctions and work with these distinctions even though understanding that they're only a piece of the larger puzzle right like yes your quest for truth is always contextualized by historical like happenstance and all that but also you can kind of brat like you can bracket some of those questions and deal with the systematic ones or deal with oh, the yeah, dogmatic sure. ones. Right. And I think for me, that's what's interesting because in this debate, I don't think it, like I rarely hear anything about the filioque that moves beyond the historical considerations to actually what I want to know, which is like, what is the difference between these systematically? And what does it say about God and about relations? Like, between the persons in the Trinity. Um, yeah, exa- yeah. What, what does it say about those and what difference does it make? And it will make, that is a historical question in that terms of difference. Like what difference does it make if we say it every week? Well, it's ecumenical stuff. There's yeah, historical, blah, blah, blah. But I'm really interested in the systematic question. Well, the dogmatic and the systematic. So the dogmatic question, as I, as I previously said, is. Um, is it true, right? Is it actually the case that um, the spirit in some way has um, some relation of dependence upon the son? And the paraphilium and the filioque are both ways of saying yes to that question, right? And so, um, you know, you, you have to deal with some, some tricky issues in... For, especially fourth and fifth century Trinitarian theology between Greeks and Latins, and without getting into the whole controverted question of the Derenyong paradigm and, and things like that, it, it's, it's simply the case that people like Gregory of Nyssa and people like Augustine, even though I think they um, agree on the, on the particulars and agree on the conclusions, have sort of distinct ways of making an argument. Um, and part of the distinctions in those arguments have to do with um, conceptual differences between ways of caching these things out in Latin and ways of caching them out in Greek. I mean, in Latin, uh, for, for uh, somebody like Augustine to argue in favor of the filioque is not to say that the perfilium has to be wrong, um, because you can have a general notion of procession and a general notion of principle um, in which you can make largely the exact same argument, um, whether, whether you're using um, the paraphilium or the filioque, right? Um, a little bit different, difficult to do that in Greek. Um, I mean, Nyssa seems to prefer to want to use um, uh, immediate and mediated or or mediate procession as a way of distinguishing the 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 way that the son is begotten from the way that the spirit proceeds whereas in augustine and most of the later 
Latin theologians, procession is both a general and a special term. It refers in general to both the sons being begotten from, from or by the Father and the Spirit's procession from the Father and the Son. So uh, you, could, you, have, you can have a general notion of procession that applies to both, whereas I, I think you, you tend not to see that um, in Greek authors. There's probably going to be exceptions running in both cases. But um, So what, what's the real cash out in terms of, of um, systematic uh, significance to that, uh, the yes to the doctrinal question? Um, you know, maybe in some instances, not a lot, but it depends on what the specific systematic question is. I mean, in the post-Cappadocian authors in the in the East, right, you're 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 moving on rather quickly into formally Christological questions, right? You're you're dealing with with f with the the questions of monophysitism and Apollinarianism and questions that are going to lead to Ephesus and to Chalcedon, uh, which are are formally about Christology. Um, but Augustine, you know, in the in the fifth century, is still having to deal with Arians, you know. So this the sort of migration from east to west um, means kind of a theological relitigation of a lot of questions that had been settled for a few decades at least in the east. And part of settling those questions involves extending the reflection um, and asking further systematic questions about uh, Trinitarian processions and relations that um, have a different line of development in, in the East. So, you know, um, that combined with some of the linguistic differences and things like that lead to a different line of, of inquiry that leads to different kinds of systematic, which is not to say dogmatic, conclusion. So. Um, I don't think there's a, any, any kind of like formal disagreement about these things dogmatically. Um, so the, the, the question then becomes, what's the difference that makes the difference systematically, right? Or, or synthetically, um, and does it really matter? So one, one angle I've taken on this with my students is to ask them, to um, usually awkward silence is so we we do you know homoousios try and really really get that right try and drum out any modalism if we can um but but then we have to ask this question of like okay so then why is the son not the father um and usually the 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 students who have a little more familiar with the creed can say well this you know i can get them with a lot of pointing at a diagram say well the son is begotten and the father is unbegotten okay good um and then uh, the question that pertains i think to this is okay so why is the spirit not the son and i think that can be a trickier question um or at least for my students um particularly particularly if the question of the filioque or the perfilium is sort of up for grabs, right? 
Um, it gets, it gets, that's, that seems to me a systematic question, um, right? It, it, it's a question for trying to understand something that's already dogmatically established, right? That um, I, you know, I, I follow Lonergan taking Athanasius's line, right? So every, everything you would say about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, uh, you would say about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, except that the Father's not the Son and the Son is not the Father and the Father's Spirit and so on. Um, and so you have the sort of basic, you have the sort of basic um, identity of, of nature and distinction of persons. And so then like, why, how, um, you know, how, how, how are we going to hash that out? How's that going to work? Um, and I, I, you know, I, I am pretty convinced as a, as a non-expert <clears throat> that the filioque does a lot of work there. Um, right. Cause you have, you can do this kind of Thomas thing where you can say, look, we've got, we've got differences of relation and you can appeal to the differences of relation to distinguish the persons. Um, but I don't know. I, you know, my students are never quite as convinced by this <laughs> as, as I am. Um, and it's yeah. also, and it's, and it's, and it, because, and for, for not for nothing, right. Cause um, on its face, proceeds from the father has begotten from the father and proceeds from the father and the son, depending on how you sort of in your own head schematize that relationship, um, can seem like not can seem like a, a, a distinction without a difference. I think to some, some people or, or a distinction with so much difference, right. That it, it mean that it leads to, uh, the Phocian accusation that, uh, that to say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son is to in fact say that there are two processions of the spirit, one from the father and one from the son, right? Which is, you know, is Focius accusation. It's not true, however. Um, but you know, it, it, it can lend itself to that because of the ambiguity of, of, right. It can sort of seem to, it can seem to say too much and or too little. Um, and, and conversely, right. You can, you can, uh, you you can have liabilities that run the other way. Um, so you know, Maximus, for instance, is you know has this famous letter in which he's trying to explain the difference between the the sort of um, largely Greek notion of even though it's a Latin phrase here of the Greek notion of the perfilium and the more Latin notion of the filioque, and you know he's he's very um, sort of positive about their their compatibility, but also very um, quick to caution Westerners about being very exact in in this terminology and in what it means, because it lends itself to all of these um, misinterpretations that are going to destroy the unity of of the Trinity. Um, but yeah, I mean the 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 real question, and I mean in in Lonergan's account, right? This is the question, the fundamental problem in Trinitarian theology, which is that the Son both is Ase and not Ase, and that the Spirit both is Ase and not Ase, and that the Son and the Spirit are not Ase and uh, in, in the same respect. So um, that, that sort of creates the basic nest of problems. And understanding the filioque systematically is a way of addressing that nexus of problems. 
Um, so abstracting from the historical particulars for a bit, um, you, you can you can sort of work this out in either uh, following Augustine or you can do it in a more uh, synthetic way following Thomas. But um, in both instances, this is the, the problem that's trying to be addressed, right? How is the Son not the Spirit? Um, you know, Augustine does this in part by asking, what is the Spirit's proper name? And he says, you know, it can't be Holy Spirit <laughs> because, well, the Father and the Son are also holy. Um, and because all three persons of the Trinity are God and God is Spirit, um, God doesn't have a body. Uh, the Father and the Son are also, in that respect, truly said to be spirit. So what is the spirit's true name? Right? What is the, the proper name that is predicated of the spirit but not predicated of the Father and the Son? And Augustine's answer is gift. Uh, right? That the spirit is um, that which is given. And then you get to ask the question, well, given by whom? And that enables him to have some basic language and to lay down some basic determinations for talking about the way in which the procession of the Spirit is distinct from the generation of the Son because, because it is um, organized around the giving and receiving of a gift. And so um, he, can, he can then talk about Something like a co-principle, right? Not two principles, so a single principle, um, and yet a a principle that had that um, in its oneness has sort of um, two terms behind it, right? Um, Thomas is going to work this out more fully um, in in his account of the psychological analogy. Uh, but it gets at the the essential point that um, gives lie to Phocius's accusation, right? That the the whole tradition here, from Augustine through to Thomas, is affirming that there is a single principle that that is um, the reason for the procession of the Holy Spirit. There's not two principles, and so. To, to say the filioque is not to say there are two principles uh, for the, the Spirit and therefore two processions of the Spirit, um, but rather it is to say that the procession of the Spirit is co-principled. Um, and it has as its principle the Father and the Son. Now you can go on to ask in what respect that relation of the Father and the Son is a principle of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I think you, you first have to sort of make quite clear um, that in saying that the Father and the Son are the principle of the Holy Spirit, you're not saying that there are two principles. I wonder what you think of um, Nori Clark in his Paramarquette lecture, I guess it is, or I don't care if it's Aquinas lecture, probably Paramarquette lecture, I would think. Um, he talks about needing to, to articulate uh, what he calls, I haven't read this in a decade. Let me see if I can remember what he calls it. I think he calls it a, a positive perfection of receptivity. 
that he's worried that if you have the sort of receiving of a gift, um, that you have a, uh, some kind of potency or imperfection in one of the mm-hmm. persons, right? That there has to be some kind of lack in order for there to be a, a, a receiving. Um, do you think that's a, a is that is that a um, a solution in search of a problem, or do you think that that's a sort of a, a real uh, systematic? There's a real systematic sort of exigence for for working out something like a positive perfection of receptivity in 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 that way of construing it. I mean, I think the first thing you have to say, right, is that the 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 source for all this is is the New Testament, right? That's where all this language is coming from. And so, like like much of fourth and fifth century theology, it's a it's a there there are arguments about how to reckon with and understand um, the diversity of language for the persons in the New Testament. Right. And so, um, it's it's. Augustine isn't sort of pulling this term out of out of thin air, but you know there there's a there's a related problem here, which is um, why why does the son also have to, in some respect, be the giver of this gift? Right? Um, if the son is begotten and the father is the unbegotten one who begets, um, the spirit doesn't also have to be a begetter, right? Uh, so. Why does the son also, in some way, have to be a giver of a gift? Because you could make a, a merely verbal distinction, right? You could say, well, we know the son is not the spirit because the son is begotten, and the spirit is not the son because the spirit is given. And you could just sort of make that verbal distinction and pretend like you've solved the problem. Um, and that's. And, and, and that was my plan. <laughs> well, we don't like conceptualism around here. And so that's not going to be our plan. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. You're no, I mean, if, if all you have is an external utterance that doesn't have any understanding behind it, you're, you're just like, you're just playing checkers. You know, there's not, there's nothing going on. You're not actually doing theology. You're just uttering words. Um, so, you know, Splitting, splitting a hair and just uh, asserting a verbal distinction without any kind of, of understanding behind it is not actually going to get us anywhere because the question is still going to remain because it hasn't actually really been answered. So this part... Is, sorry, sorry, I'm going to interrupt your train of thought. This is maybe a dead end, but I just, it just occurred to me. Though you might, you might do something like that uh, as a matter of dogmatic definition. Right. I mean, not, not I mean, not you wouldn't knowingly make a, a vacuous distinction, but I mean, you might insist on a, on a particular um, verbal way of proceeding or a certain kind of grammatical um, control uh, that wasn't itself predicated on the advance. I'm just trying to distinguish the sort of dogmatic from systematic exigence here. Right. Um, that you might you might insist on a way of speaking um, and think what you're doing is making a kind of systematic advance. Um, when really what you're asserting is a kind of dogmatic control of, of uh, utterance, right? Sort of the, 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 the expression of one's faith. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, because the terms have their origin in revelation, then right. that's, a, that's a different issue. I, yeah. I'm, I'm more taking a pot shot at uh, a, mo- a mode of doing systematic theology 
that imagines if if you um, that merely verbal distinctions um, solve intellectual problems. No, totally right. And, but I, I guess what I'm wanting to sort of underline or highlight or draw out or something is the way in which um, uh, the sort of cousin of that in dogmatic definition can make if you don't have a clear um, doctrine systematics distinction. Um, it seems like you could you could think that what you were doing is theology when you were sort of refining modes of uh, modes of expression in that way. Right? Oh, yeah, quite right. If you have a robust distinction between doctrines and systematics, um, you you're if you if the questions you're asking are systematic questions, then like just nitpicking around the edges of the the like control of expression isn't you're not you're not going anywhere. You're spinning you're spinning your wheels, right. Now you may you may have discovered that you need to step back to doctrines and and make some some refinements on the controls of expression, but uh, but but that's but that's a different that's a different functional specialty, right? Yeah, <laughs> anyway, but, sorry that was a little bit out of the thing, but but surely we can say that like begetting and giving are fundamentally different things, right? They are, but and not we, because they're different words, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not only because they're different words. That we have different words because they're fundamentally different things. So, like, that comes back to the question, like, well, if the son is begotten and the spirit is given, why does the son have to be involved in the givenness? Like, what way, like, is, are there ways you could systematically work out begotten versus given that don't involve the son also, like, being co, I guess, the co-principle in the spirit's givenness? So the spirit, the, the, is the spirit co-principle in the son's begottenness? And if, and if not, why not? Right. Right. No. And that's, and those are, those are all the, the correct and right questions to ask. Right. I mean, the, you're, you're not actually going to be able to adjudicate them systematically and unless you have a doctrinal um, answer, right. Because in, in, in the first instance, you're asking about the truth of things and no, no amount of systematic articulation is going to establish the truth of things. Um, so if you, if you are, if you are affirming as a matter of doctrine, as a matter of, of at least generically defined as dogma, that, that there is some um, revealed truth that asserts that the spirit in some way um, depends upon the son and, and, um, and that the spirit is not just the son or another son, um, then the systematic frame allows you to try to understand how or um, in what respect that is true. So um, one of the things that's said about the son is that the son is um, right the, the image of the father the expression of the Father, the word of the Father. Um, everything that the Son has, the Son has from the Father, and as word, the Son um, is the utterance of the Father. So um, one of the things that uh, theologians are going to want to say about this is that um, the Son has to image the Father in the Father's own begetting and uh, of of the son so that the son has to be in order to be an image of the father has to in some way be a principle of procession itself so um the son images the father 
insofar as the sun is also a principle of precession. But the sun is not unoriginated the way that the father is unoriginated. And so the sun um, is going to be a principle of precession, but only as originate as as uh, an originated person and not as unoriginated. And so even the sun's being a principle of procession is going to be something that the son receives from the father because only the father is unbegotten and ungenerated. And so the son cannot be um, a, a principle of the procession of the spirit in the way that the father is the principle of procession or the principle of, of um, generation of the son. The son can only be a co-principle because the son's uh, power, you might say, of procession is something that the son receives as son from the father. Um, and so there's going to be have to be a distinction in procession there um, because you have, a dis- you have a distinction between generation and being ungenerated. Um, so that's, that's the sort of first set of basic determinations that you need to lay down that, um, the, 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 the principle, the co-principle, uh, from which proceeds the spirit is co-principle because, um, the son's power to, to, um, be the reason for a procession is itself a power given or received, uh, as son from the father. And so the father is still the unoriginated, um, you know, Westerners get a little uh, squeamish about saying cause in this case, Uh, Greeks, not so much. Um, But the, 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 the unoriginated cause or reason or source, what have you, um, for the, for the spirit, um, while the son is the caused, the, the the begotten, the originated, the whatever word you want to use, um, reason for the procession of the of the spirit. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful, actually. <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, my I once upon a time went through all of Lonergan's stuff on this, and then held on just held on to just enough to be able to teach it to undergraduates, and they don't they don't usually go that far, but that's really helpful. Robin, did you have any uh, follow-ups or other stuff you wanted to... Um, Ryan's capacity, by the way, just for those of you listening at home. Uh, we do this by video conference, and Robin is holding her, her beautiful daughter in her hands uh, and rocking her and stuff back and forth. And Ryan's ability to maintain concentration uh, while this tiny little uh, bald-headed baby is bobbing back and forth across the screen is really something to behold. Uh, it's super know. admirable, I know. Yeah. yeah, I'm only bobbing her in the screen because. Uh, She's kind of cranky and it's oh grumbles. Well, it's because she's poopy and I didn't change her diaper because I got her up from her nap and just ran back down to the podcast. So that <laughs> you're so I, devoted. Yeah, not to my child. Um, <laughs> I, and and I think you can make the further point just to stay concentrated and not get distracted by India for a few seconds longer. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. You can you can affirm every uh, all that those distinctions. Mm-hmm. With the filioque or with a perfilium, right? Um, right. Be, because you, you, it allows you to make a distinction between modalities of procession. Right. right. So then, is there? So then, the payoff, like of kind of. So in, in some ways, it doesn't really make sense to choose one or the other. The payoff is that 
each one you can systematically work through those distinctions in a in a way that is just a little bit different yeah i mean i as as an answer to a systematic question i'm not sure that it it ultimately is going to be a a hugely important um matter to make a make a determination one way or the other on that. Now, I, I think you, you could ask a, f- a further question, right? Because we still really don't, in in this conversation, we really still haven't said what a procession is right. um, or, or how it applies to a perfectly simple God. Um, and that's a question that's going to, or an answer to which is going to require something like an analogy. Um, the The sort of tradition of analogy that comes from Gregory of Nyssa uh, and then is kind of put in a little more systematic form in John of Damascus is going to, to, to work this out in terms of uh, an analogy of an, of an external word, right? A word that's spoken um, that has as its um, medium of expression the sort of breath or spirit that is and right. so it's a, it's an analogy of a kind of verbal utterance, whereas in Augustine and then kind of perfected in Thomas, the analogy is really of a a inner word, not an outer word. Um, and so the it, you you may find that going with a with a filioque or a paraphilium is going to make some difference on maybe which which version of that analogy. Um, is going to be the most useful to you. But I actually, I'm just asking that question. I don't actually know the answer to it. Um, it's just, it's just, um, you, you see that um, verbal external word utterance over and over and over again in Greek fathers. And uh, you don't see it as predominantly in the West, at least after Augustine with um, the focus more on the inner word. Right. I mean, that, I mean, that sounds like dealing with the procession thing sounds like a big enough topic to do at another time. So I think, especially if we want to do um, treasures, I think this is a, this makes sense of a place to stop. But thank you. This was really yeah. great to think about, even for me, just how to start thinking through these topics, you know, and like I said, really see how to think through them systematically. So, and I'm really proud of us because we did theology for an entire podcast, I know. guys. Despite my best efforts to derail it. Right? Yeah. So the conclusion of which is, and if we really wanted to work this all the way out, we'd have to start doing philosophy. philosophy. (laughs) But we'll do that next time. That's right. We still did theology for Woo! Go us. Okay. Anyways, we got we got treasures. We do. So I yeah, you know, I've been I've been uh calling for people to send us emails and uh an old friend of mine, um a guy named David Justice, which is just a great name, um, and he's a great—he's a great guy. Uh, I, I know him through John Birdingham, uh, who I went to Boston College with, and who's uh, at Greenville College now. But um, David is a PhD student at SLU at the moment, and he writes this. And by the way, if you've started listening subsequent, we haven't done this in a few weeks, but we had—we had a segment we used to do regularly called "Treasures Old and New." Where it was an uh, an old book, relatively speaking, and a new book, relatively speaking, that you thought people should go check out. So, uh, this is David in his email here. If y'all are still looking for treasures old and new, 
and we are and in fact we are so send us an email systematically podcast at gmail.com i've got some that are more or less totally unrelated to one another which we like the first is Mueller's the spirit of celibacy which as you perhaps know is Mueller's defense of clerical celibacy i think it's interesting because his defense centers on the idea of priestly celibacy as an act of political resistance something that grant grant kaplan wrote a great article about uh in for first things Perhaps this topic is more widely discussed in Catholic circles, but I had never thought of celibacy as an act of political resistance prior to Mueller. And I think his argument still has some relevance today. His idea is that since the state generally seeks efficiency in production, celibacy is unthinkable in a secular framework. So by committing to a life of celibacy in service of the church, priests are pointing to a different set of values and a different world, one that does not have efficiency and productivity at its center. So that's my treasure hole. My treasure new-ish is William Jones' book, Is God a White Racist? from 1997, wherein Jones argues that given the historical evidence, if one thinks that God is a God who is on the side of the poor and oppressed and is working to liberate them, one must come to the conclusion that God is a white racist unless one assumes the goodness of God beforehand. He then calls for what he calls a humanocentric theism, which acknowledges that God exists, but holds that God is not specially working in history to liberate the oppressed. I mentioned this book not because I agree with his argument, but because I think the question the title asks is a very important one, and I think that we don't often have to squarely face it. And though Jones is particularly critiquing liberation theology, his argument is one that any theologian needs to wrestle with, especially as liberation theology has become more enmeshed in the way that current theology is done. So I think theologians will generally do better theology if they have to wrestle with the question Jones is posing in this book. So thank you, David. For a treasure old and a treasure newish, we appreciate it. If you too have a treasure old and treasure new, again, send us an email systematically podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to bug us on Twitter at systematic pod, and uh, if you want to help support the show, we still have uh, you know a, a little bit of overhead for paying for podcast hosting and the like, you can do so patreon.com slash systematically. Uh, thank you, Robin, for the the fun questions and the um, and the uh, uh, bathing the the bathing discussion at the beginning. I'm sure that'll be of uh, great interest to our listeners. Um, as yeah, our music, and, I, and oh, then yeah. you know, any of our listeners who do use like three in one shampoo conditioner can just like be like quietly shamed. And, yeah, and no, that, we're judging, I, and that's always great. Yeah, we're we're judging you. Um. Our music as ever is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. So thanks for listening. Go out there this week and be attentive. Bye.